I want you to talk to God where you are. I just want you to speak to him. Uh, there's a reason why you came here today. I don't believe in coming to church as a routine. Um, because there was a point in my life when routines stopped having any meaning to me. Because if there's no reason for why you are doing something, then you should not be doing it. So if you're here, I'm sure you're here for a purpose. And I want you to talk to God about the reason that you're here. That everything that you would hear today, that the word that you need to hear, it might not even be the word that you want to hear, but the word that you need to hear, that he would speak to you today by himself. In Jesus' name. Our Father, we thank you. We give you praise. Thank you for gathering us here together once again. Thank you for the second day of this program. Thank you because by your hand you brought us together. Thank you because the things that we're going to talk about today, that you will lead us in Jesus' name. You would speak through my lips. I would not speak of myself. I would not speak out of any form of intelligence or self-will or pride. That everything I say would be what you want me to say in Jesus' name. And everyone will be met at the point of their needs in Jesus' name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I have the flyer here. I think it's the last copy of the flyer. Or second to the last. Uh, and yesterday we, we talked about some things that I was led to recap on today. Before we move into today's um, teaching. But anybody who came here because they saw the flyer must have seen um, the questions that are written in the flyer. Just in case you don't have it, I'm just going to read you those questions out. And there are three, there are three questions written down here. The first question is, does Christianity preach superiority to others? The second question is, are Christians better than people of other religions? The third question is, is Jesus the only way to God? These three questions are probably, you can phrase them in different ways. You can use English language to talk about them in various ways, but these three questions are probably the most um, uh, vital questions to ask when you want to talk about Christianity. They are the questions that will cause the most friction with your friends, with your family, with the people around you. And I have people that don't believe in Jesus as acquaintances, either people you meet from work or people you meet in school or people that you interact with on a regular day. It's impossible for you to make the assumption that everybody that you see believes in Jesus, right? It's not possible. Of course, people have a right to believe what they want to believe. So when a Christian says he or she is a Christian, usually these three questions phrased in whatever form are the first thing that someone who doesn't share the same faith with you would probably throw at you. Um, I've had so many conversations with people. I remember there was, I have a friend 
who worked with me for a while. And the minute he found out that I was pastoring, the first thing he told me <laughs> was that, Billy, it's because I've known you since, so, like, there's just this mindset that I have about pastors. I'm like, I know. <laughs> Everybody has a mindset about pastors somehow. And we started talking. And the first question that people usually throw at you is, okay, so if I do this thing, does that mean I'm going to hell? If I do this thing, are you trying to say that I am doomed? And when, when people ask me such questions, on any habits, any lifestyle, some people ask me about homosexuality, some people ask me about alcoholism, some people ask me about drugs, some people ask me about promiscuity, ask me about various things that are labeled sin. And when people ask me the question, they usually ask a direct, okay, so is, is this person going to hell? <laughs> and when I when I get asked that question, the first thing I say is that's a trap question. It's a trap question because you're not actually looking for an answer. Like, if I said no, they are not, you'd ask me how or why. Because the reality is, anybody that is asking me that question on some level, because of what they know about you and because of what they know about or what they think they know about the Christian faith, the answer they are truly expecting is a no. So if I say yes, next question you'd ask, the person will probably ask me is how, like how is the person going to heaven or how is the person going to meet with God with all these things in the person's lives? But on the other hand, if I say no, the next thing they will come up with is, eh, who are you to judge? <laughs> Like, who puts you in that position where you can dictate what happens to somebody at the end of his life? So it's a trap question. One thing that I have come to realize about life, particularly of people of my generation, and I'm pretty young, I think, <laughs> uh, but my peers and my colleagues, is that the safest answer that we want to hear is an I don't know. That's actually what we want to hear. It's the safest. We don't actually want to hear a yes because there's still something inside us that tells us that that thing somehow is wrong. But however, because we don't have the power to either stop doing that thing or we don't see ourselves breaking out of those habits, we also do not want to hear that if we keep doing those things, something bad is going to happen at the end of the road. So the safest answer, what we actually want to hear when we ask ourselves those questions or we ask those questions is, well, I don't know, like, when we get there, you know, it's God that knows what to happen to everybody at the end of the day. That's the, that's the answer we, we want to hear. I was, I was talking to him, and he was talking to me about sensitive issues, sexuality, and gender rights, human rights, feminism, and we're discussing these things at length, and identity crisis rules the world today. That's, that's the world that we live in. Everything in this world is driven by an identity narrative because everybody wants to be a part of something. That's the truth. But the point that I'm making here in the conversation that I was having with this guy is while we're talking, at the end of, because it was, we're exchanging voice notes, when I was sending him like 20 minute, 40 minute voice notes, and he sent me a voice note, and at the end of his voice note, he was like, Billy, I'm sure you're going to reply me in like one hour. I said, I don't have the strength today. <laughs> but the last thing he said was, Billy, these are really complex things, like nobody knows. These issues are so dicey and layered that nobody knows what the answer truly is. 
And what I said to him was, well, being someone that for the longest time in my life, I was, I was very logical. I was the kind of person that if I didn't believe in God, I would need systemic proof for every single thing that I do. Because every single thing that I do, I have to be able to defend it. And I told him, being that kind of person, I understand you when you say that it's... Um, I understand you when you say that these are complex issues that don't have answers. But I told him, unfortunately, where I am right now, these things have answers. But I told him the problem is the answers are not natural. The answers are spiritual. And then we entered a new, <laughs> we entered another dimension of conversations as to what is spiritual and what isn't. But today, I'm going to recap what we said yesterday by turning us back to John 3.16. Just to talk about some of the main things that were said yesterday. Because from John 3.16, we will build a we'll build a case, and um, we'll build a case. And from building the case, um, I pray that God helps us in Jesus' name. John three sixteen is probably the most popular verse in the whole Bible. Uh, I I remember when I was a kid. It was like memory verse for most children classes. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Anybody who grew up in some form of Christian household, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian household, if, for example, you went to a school that was Christian or uh, multi-religious and you did like CRK or something in secondary school, at some point you will have come across this verse. It's so popular. I also believe it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible because it contains some things that without those things, I call them drivers, but honestly, you can call them anything. Without those things, you cannot understand this Bible. And you cannot understand what Christianity is. You cannot understand what the point is. And those three things I said yesterday, I said, number one, the Bible says, for God so loved the world. The first thing is love. The entire narrative, I'm, I think in Sunday school today we talked about love. The entire narrative of anything that you want to talk about in Christianity is love. Love is the reason why Christianity exists. Because Christianity will not exist without Jesus Christ. It's called Christianity. Christ is in the name. So if Jesus did not come, there will be no Christianity. And the only reason why Jesus came is because God loved God loved us and he gave his best. So I said the first thing that drives anything Christianity is love. I said the second thing that drives any conversation or any understanding of what the Christian life is, is belief. Because the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him is belief. And yesterday one of the things that I said was that there's a study called Theology. Theology, essentially, is the study of the nature of God. You can go to university to read it. People have gone to read it. So if you want to talk about Christian theology, basically, Christian theology is the study of the nature of the biblical God. 
So there's Islamic theology, for example, there's Buddhist theology, there's theology in every single religious um, or religion that exists in the world today. And in theology, what happens essentially is that there are a lot of theological courses. There are ways that they, this Bible, you would think they are not layers to it until you study theology. There are so many courses. They'll say there's Christology, eschatology, pneumatology, hermeneutics, homiletics, all inside studying this Bible. So many courses. And there are people who are professors in theology. I'm a student of theology. There are people that know more than me, that teach it in universities, that don't believe. Because for them, their entire approach to this Bible is intellectual, is simply reasoning. Their entire approach to the Bible is, oh, it's just a course of study, like you go to school to study bizarrean, or you go to school to study accounting, or you go to school to study philosophy, or you go to school to study sociology. For them, there is no belief. You hear ridiculous testimonies of people who have doctorates in theology, who know so much about the Bible from an intellectual point of view, but they don't believe it. It's just intellectual curiosity. And unfortunately, there's a, there are a lot of people that also approach the, the word of God and approach Christianity from a purely intellectual perspective. And it can't work because the foundation of anything Christianity is belief. And belief is not in the head, it's in the heart. And I know I did this because like the heart is in here. <laughs> this is just the heart that pumps. But we usually point to our chest for some reason when we're talking about the heart. Anyway. It's in the heart, it's not in the head. Unfortunately. So I have conversations with people and when we talk about, they'll say, for example, they are Christians and it's people that call themselves Christians I usually say this thing to because if you say you're not a Christian, then it's fine. We know where we are starting from. But I have conversations with Christians and they're like, Billy, I'm a Christian, I believe, but like this thing is not just logical. And the next thing I say to them is, if you say you're a Christian, Essentially, what you are saying is that you believe that a woman who did not have sex with a man somehow gave birth to a boy. And the boy grew up. And when he grew up, the Spirit of God came into the boy. And the boy went about healing the sick, raising the dead when he became a young man. He healed the sick, he raised the dead. He took bread from a small boy, divided it and fed 5,000 people minus women and children, fed 4,000 people, minus women and children. Then somehow he got arrested, and after he got arrested, they killed him and hung him on the cross. And when they hung him on the cross, three days after, he rose up from that grave. And because he rose up, you are saved. So if you say you're a Christian, that is the entire narration of what you claim to believe in. There's nothing logical about that story from the beginning to the end. So, logic did not save you. Why do you think that logic or intellectualism alone would help you to understand something that is not even based on logic? So when I'm talking to Christians and they come up with intellectual arguments when it comes to the Bible, I usually tell them, I can explain, like God can give me knowledge or understanding to help you to explain what you are confused about. God can even explain to you himself, but don't expect an answer that is straightforward, 
that you can use your brain to process. Because the foundation of what you claim to believe in and be a part of is not logical in the first place. Because you are saying that a woman all of a sudden just got pregnant. And even if you can use some form of pseudoscience or fringe science to explain that, you are saying that, okay, that child, because that child was killed by some Romans, the child rose up on the third day, over 2,000 years ago in history, and because of that man, you are saved. If you believe in that, then you have to kind of throw your logic out the window. Because the foundation of the Christian faith is belief. So love first, belief second. And the third thing I talked about was the end of John 3.16. And we said that what, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the third thing that defines the Christian narrative is crossing from death to life. Unfortunately, <coughs> there are two sides of this story that are they are both extremes and they are wrong. So there's a first extreme of Christians who would want to teach you about God or talk to someone about Christianity and will start from hell rather than start from love. That's wrong. The beginning is love and belief. Some people will say they are going out of an evangelism or they are speaking to their friends or speaking to people in their society or their social network. And the first thing they mention is, oh, you will perish. Oh. <laughs> if you keep doing what you are doing, you will perish. Oh. And you know, if you keep doing that, I know people, I certainly have people that in my life that they are at that point in their lives when they are like, hey, she be is that hell, like, let's be going there. Because they've reached a point where they're like, I mean, we're in Nigeria, we're in hell already. <laughs> People have sort of become so numb to that message because fear doesn't save anybody. If you're scared of something, temporarily you might do right. And many of us might have been there before where you went to a church and they preached to you this message that, oh my God, you left there and you were terrified. And for like <laughs> one week, you arranged yourself, you did the right thing, you tried not to do this, tried not to do that. But eventually that message will fade. And you find yourself going back to who you, re who you were. Because fear does not save anyone. It's just a temporary measure, it's a temporary fix. Once whatever scared you doesn't exist anymore, you do what you like. And unfortunately, because we are talking about the end of the road, hell is not tomorrow. And nobody knows when they are going to die. So like one week, you hear those messages, and before you know it, you are back to where you started from. So there's that extreme of people who approach God from that. That's a wrong extreme. However, there's another wrong extreme of people that try to pretend like there is no perishing. That is also wrong. And two truths can exist in a vacuum. There is a perishing. But the narrative is that God wants to rescue us from that perishing. The narrative is not that God is excited that anybody gets destroyed or anybody's life ends in jeopardy. God is not excited. If he was excited, he would not have given out of love the most precious thing to him. So essentially, there is a perishing, but the focus it's not on the perishing. The focus 
is that God wants and desires us to cross from death into life. And that's John 3.16. And these three drivers, love, belief, belief is also called faith. Love, belief or faith, and crossing from death to life are the three things that drive every single thing that we call Christianity today. Every other thing that is true rests under these three things. And anything that you cannot connect to these three things is not the Bible. It's not the Bible. And that's where we started from yesterday. And yesterday we started talking about what life and death actually means. And we went to Genesis. And one of the things I mentioned yesterday is that Genesis is the most important book in the whole Bible. And I went at length. So we spent the entire, entirety of yesterday in Genesis. And we're still going to spend a little time in Genesis today to close this particular series. But yesterday, I went at length and we looked at the first time that life was mentioned in the Bible. And we looked at the first time that death was mentioned in the Bible. And essentially, life was mentioned first in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where the Bible says that, and God formed man from the clay or from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him, and man became a living soul. So the Bible says that he breathed the breath of life into him, and man became a living soul. And one of the things we talked about Testament was written in Hebrew, and that word breath in Hebrew also translates to spirit. It translates to spirit. So, one of the things, and this is me probably being a little bit theological, but it's not deep, but one of the things we understand about the Bible is this Bible was not originally written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek and Aramaic. And just like in our traditional languages, one of the things I usually say is that English language is the most deficient language in the world, at least one of the most deficient languages. The reason why is because in most of our traditional languages, every single word carries a form of expression. For example, in Yoruba, if you're saying Oshe and Eshe, you're saying thank you, but you cannot say oh for someone that is an elder. You have to say eh. It's the same thank you, but contextually in that language, it's disrespectful to say oh to an elderly person. And I'm sure in every traditional language, there are those nuances where basically you can be saying the same thing using two different words depending on who you are speaking to. I watch a lot of anime, and I know it exists in Japanese as well. When, when they are greeting someone in Japanese, if the person is an elder or a friend, you say different things. So, in the original interpretation of that word, what is communicated there is that the Spirit of God essentially came into dust or clay, and man became a living soul. So, essentially, 
what we talked about yesterday is how did sand, because we've all seen sand before, whether it's humus soil or clay soil or sandy soil or the one in the beach or stone, how did that become what you're touching on your hand today? The Bible tells us that God breathed his spirit into man and man lived. Is that logical? No. It's not. But I'm not having a logical conversation with you. I'm talking to you based on scripture. So essentially what we said yesterday was that the true definition of life, because we said those that what believe in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. So essentially, to understand John 3.16, we have to know, okay, so Jesus came, we understand that. God gave him, we understand that. We have to believe in him, we understand that. But what is he rescuing us from and what is he taking us to? That perishing and that life, we need to know exactly what they mean. And we said life is the nature of God because it's God's spirits that made man to come alive. And it shows itself in three different ways. The first way is first spiritual life. Spiritual life is essentially God and man being close. God and man not being separated in any way or form because man possesses God's nature. And the second way is physical life, which, is, which means that the body actually came alive. Man could walk about on this earth to tend to the garden. And the third is eternal life. And eternal life is the final manifestation or the final form of spiritual life when man and God will be together forever. And that's the first mention of life in the whole Bible. And those three manifestations exist. Then we talk about death. And when we talk about death, the first time death or die was mentioned in the Bible was in that same Genesis chapter 2, from verse 16 to 17. And God said, of every tree of this garden you shall eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you should not eat. If you eat of it, you will surely die. That's the first time death is mentioned in the entire Bible. And we looked at it and we said, what does this mean? Well, before we talked about death, the first thing we talked about was an attribute of God that is important for us to understand. To understand anything God, there are two major things we have to understand about God. The first is that God is a God of choice. I cannot count the amount of times that I have had a conversation with someone and we're talking about Genesis and the first thing the person was in short, usually someone that like wants to get into debates and I don't get into a lot of debates. I don't believe debates can save anybody because you keep believing what you believe. I'll keep believing what I believe. We'll be arguing, it's kind of pointless. If we're having a conversation, it's different. You tell me what you want to tell me. But one of the things that I hear the most in debates is, eh, why did God now put that tree there? When he knew, maybe God knows everything. When he knew that somehow, that Ad so he knew that Adam was going to do this thing. So people essentially say stuff like God set us up for failure. 
and I understand it. I understand it totally and completely. Like, it is very defensible if you say that God set us up for failure. But there's something that I want to mention about God. And if you check Genesis to Revelation, you find out that this thing about God does not change. God is a God of choice. So in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 from verse 15, I think, the Bible says that Moses was talking to, Moses was giving like his farewell speech to Israel. And he says, okay, I give you good and evil. Choose this day. So essentially, he told Moses, he said, Moses told them, he said, I give you life and good. If you would follow the ways of the Lord and the commandments that he has given you, all that stuff, you prosper, you do this, you do that. Then he says what? If you don't, this is what's going to happen to you. God is a God of choice. And God equips us with the tools that we need to make the right one. But God will never choose for us. Here's what I mean. Adam's obedience in that garden meant nothing. It will have meant nothing to God if Adam did not have a choice to disobey God. Like that option has to exist for his obedience to have any value. Some people will say stuff like, oh, the angels that God has, they're just robots. God just controls them wherever they want. But we read clearly in Isaiah that Lucifer was an angel. The person we call Satan today was an angel of God. And if he did not have a choice, if God was just controlling them like automated AI robots, then Lucifer could not have been able to rebel and take the angels with him. Lucifer was an angel that chose, the Bible says that pride rose in his heart, and he chose to rebel against God and took a third of the angels with him. The angels, the ones read in the Bible, we don't know their names, we know like two, Gabriel and Michael, are we? Yeah. They are not with God because God is shackling their feet and their neck. They serve God by choice. God is a God of choice. And it's very important for us to know this about God. Every single thing that Jesus did on earth, he never forced himself on any human being. He never did. When he said, follow me to Peter, and said, follow me to all them, if they said no or not, be going. There was a time in the book of John, after, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus now started to talk about how he would die and people would eat his flesh. He was talking figuratively, obviously, making them understand that he was going to die and we have to basically accept him into our lives. But they didn't understand what he was saying. And the Bible says that some of his disciples, the Bible called them disciples. And it says some of the disciples, what Jesus was saying was too difficult for them. So what did they do? They left him. From that day, they left. But interestingly, when he came to Peter, Jesus turned to Peter and asked him, he was like, you two, like, we are still here, like, are you not going? <laughs> like, Jesus did not automatically make the assumption that, oh yeah, these ones are my guys. <laughs> they would never leave me. No. He asked them, okay, based on what you have heard, if they left that day, We'll probably be reading about different disciples because he will just go and choose others. God is a God of choice. He would always equip us to make the right one. 
but he would never choose for us. So the option to disobey God has to exist for your obedience to have meaning. It's the reason why we cannot force salvation on anybody. Even if you go and preach to someone, you're not going to drag the person down and tell the person, oh yeah, kneel down. Oh yeah, repeat after me. Every time you see anyone make any form of altar call, what they would say is, does anybody here want to? See, choice. He would equip you to obey, but the choice to disobey will exist because if there is no choice to disobey him, your obedience does not have any value. So we now talked about Adam and talked about how did God equip Adam to obey him? And we talked about understanding what it means to say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we said something. And we said that today, as human beings, it's very, very difficult for us to understand just what Adam lost. Because this is all that we have known. This, as we are like this, we've never known any other type of reality. In short, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is very strange to us. Some people say those two books are weird. All of a sudden, God said, oh, Adam, I name all the animals and... We don't even know how many animals existed then, and Adam named all of them. And the Bible says, whatever name that Adam gave those animals, that's the name that they had. And you're thinking to yourself, how? In some way, the Bible starts to make sense to us from Genesis chapter 4. Because when Cain killed his brother, we can understand that one, because we know murder. (laughs) We know murder. So when King killed his brother, I'm like, eh, hey, that one makes sense. King killed his brother. Why did he kill the brother? Yes, because he was jealous. We can relate with jealousy because it's our reality. That's what we live today. Because till tomorrow, people are killing their family members out of jealousy. It's the world we live in today. So we can relate with Genesis 4 down. Wars, people killing themselves for different reasons. People overthrowing kingdoms. That's what started happening from Genesis chapter 4. Of course we understand this. That's the world we live in today. Genesis 1 and 2 are strange to us because this is the reality we've always known. But there are glimpses. There are glimpses that God gives us even in these two verses that show us what we lost. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we talked about it and we said, see, At the time that Adam was relating with God in Genesis 2, however long that took, Adam did not know good and bad. He only knew God. And it's very, very difficult for us to understand that now. Because even tomorrow, as a child starts to grow up, he will start to know what good and bad is. You don't need to teach him. That's how some children will do some strange things and as their parents are coming from work, you already see that guilty, (laughs) guilty face. (laughs) How do they know that that thing is wrong? How do they know that somehow they shouldn't touch mommy's hair cream and they went and don't poured everything? (laughs) I see very ridiculous pictures of children on like on Twitter, on TikTok and all that. Children doing the most ridiculous things and their parents come home and you see this look of guilt on their face. Two-year-old, three-year-old. How do they know that they shouldn't have been doing that thing that they did? 
Good and evil is something that naturally comes to mind as we grow up. Human beings. It's not about law. It's not about the law of the land. Somehow you just know that this thing is wrong. Nobody necessarily needs to teach a child that the meat in his mother's pot is he shouldn't be going to pick it and take it. Whether he or she goes to pick it and take it is a different story. Most likely you will go because everybody did it as children. But most people did. I know me, I did. <laughs> I just went there, opened pots, picked meat and walked away. Did you take it? No. <laughs> Nobody teaches us those things. It's just stuff that we do. Adam didn't have that. Adam didn't have the burden of that choice because he had God's nature. He had God's nature. You see, when a young lion cub is growing up with the lioness and the lion, does the lion, does the lion cub ever have to like question whether it is weird that at some point he will start hunting to kill like the deer and the antelope and all this? It, it doesn't, like, they, they don't reason it. It's just stuff that comes naturally to them because it's a lion. If you go to the pet store today and you pick up a cat that they give birth to today and take that cat to your house, at some point, even if there's no cat around, that cat will start grooming itself, start licking its fur by himself. Who taught the cat? This is that the cat had to watch some video. No, it's a cat. He's just going to naturally do that at some point as he grows. Adam didn't have anything except God because he had the nature of God. Adam was not burdened with the burden we have today. Adam didn't know what was good or what was bad. Adam just knew God. So whatever God wanted to do was automatically what Adam wanted to do. So when we say how did God equip Adam to do the right thing, to make the right choice. He equipped Adam by giving Adam his nature, by breathing life into him. And then we talk about death. And we said, if life is in nature, death is also in nature. Because essentially something happened in that garden. After the events of Genesis 3, the Bible says that God chased them out of his presence. And what happened there was they lost the nature of God. And they took on a new nature. So death is what? Spiritual death, which is separation from God. Which leads to physical death, which is this body itself expiring and people started to die. <laughs> then eternal death. And eternal death is also the final manifestation of spiritual death where man and God will be separated forever. And that is life and death. So if you go back to Genesis 3, we now said that what the Bible is saying essentially is that Jesus was sent to restore man to what he lost. That life that he lost, that Adam gave away, is what Jesus came to give us back. It's not about morality. It doesn't mean that there is no morality in Christianity. It doesn't mean that there's no living right. But there are people in this world that try to live by a moral code. There are people in this world that genuinely try to be good people. It doesn't mean they are saved. The question is not about, oh, some people say just be a good person. Like, just be a good person. Do your best to be good. 
it goes beyond that that's not the point and from the fall of man man entered a vicious cycle because in genesis chapter 3 verse 23 when god was chasing them out of the garden what he said was they have become like us and that's god talking to the son and the spirit he says man has become like us before they take from the tree of life let's let them be going and live forever that's eternal life and so god chased them out of his presence and he said they have become like us because the thing is god knows what is good and what is evil but because god's nature is good he doesn't have the capacity for evil he gave adam his nature so adam would also not have the capacity for evil but now man had become like god knowing good and evil the problem is they did not have the nature of god anymore so they could not resist doing evil and another thing we we mentioned that is a bit fascinating is that have you observed just how few if you are a christian how few the, the amount of times that the devil actually shows up in this bible it's very few it doesn't show up a lot it doesn't after genesis you don't really see mention of him at all till like job till job and job the job part was even in retrospect they just showed you oh, this thing happened to where this man will start suffering now <laughs> that's how he showed up just to let you know what was happening he did not show up for such a long time the reason why he did not show up is because he did not need to man already had his nature the devil did not need to do anything anymore so after genesis 3 all of a sudden you enter genesis 4 and adam had two sons cain and abel and somehow cain killed abel the devil, they didn't mention the devil again they don't need to mention him because he's already in man his nature is already in man and from there you just man human beings enter the vicious cycle of even when god gave them the law even when god lets them know that okay these are the things i want you to do these are the things i don't want you to do as moses was collecting the law coming down they were breaking number one <laughs> they had already made themselves a golden calf it was collecting it and coming down it's not their fault and that's why i say today like people that struggle with habits people that struggle with sin people that are trying their hardest to get their life right man's problem is not what he does man's problem is who he is that's the problem there's no amount of moral teaching that you can give you can try to set someone's life aright but man's problem is never what he does it has always been who he is who he is has changed something had happened that has changed who he is and because something had happened something there had to be a fixing god had to fix it somehow and then we concluded by talking about how god fixed it and how even god's plan to fix it is in that same genesis let me say genesis is the most important book in the bible it is so in genesis chapter 3 verse 15 when when god was cursing the serpent god said to the serpent he said that 
I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. And if you have a study Bible, you, that her seed, the seed, is actually in capital letter. But even if it's not a study Bible, the point still follows because women have no seed. Biologically speaking, the man has the sperm, the woman has the egg. And when there's fertilization, the baby grows in the womb of the woman. But the sperm is needed to activate that process. Men carry the seed. And yet the Bible says, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And you will bruise his heel, Genesis 3.15, but he will crush your head. And that verse was God already speaking about the only person that will come later. Who the Bible says, the angel appeared to Mary and said, you will give birth to a son. And Mary said, how shall this thing be? Because I know no man. And the angel told Mary that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you would conceive a son. The only seed, the only woman that ever gave birth to someone without a man was Mary. And that son was Jesus. And the Bible says, even in Genesis 3.15, that you would bruise his heel. Meaning that you would have temporary victory over him. But he will crush your head. Anybody that has ever killed a snake before knows that if you cut the tail, you are wasting your time. If you cut the middle, you are still wasting your time. Reptiles are usually like that. To kill a snake, it's the head. Once the head is gone, the snake is gone. Essentially, what that verse is saying is foreshadowing that, yes, there will be temporary victory over that seed, who is Jesus, in that the devil will successfully kill him. And he did. They accused him falsely, took him, hung him on the cross. But that seed will have total victory over the devil because he will crush his head. And that victory came when Jesus rose up on the third day. So even from then, God still loved man because God enacted a plan to get man back to him. And the second thing that God did was in Genesis 3.21 when the Bible says that God covered man with the skin of an animal. And that was the point that God made it clear that blood needed to be shed. Because God was the first person. Every single thing he t started telling them to do. In Genesis chapter 4, you see that Cain and Abel went to sacrifice to God. Every single thing that was sacrificed that came after in, the, in Israel, the first person to sacrifice for man's sin was God himself. Because he killed an animal and he clothed them with the skin. As a temporary measure, as a sign that one day someone will have to die. But it couldn't have been just anybody. Because if we say that life is the nature of God and is spiritual, then physical, then eternal, then the only person that can return life to man is somebody who possesses those three lives. And unfortunately, God so valued man 
that God did not even share his nature with the angels. So an angel could not even come and die for man. The only other being that had the nature of God, apart from Adam and Eve, was God himself. So he had to come by himself in the form of flesh so that he can pay the price so that we can have his nature again, spiritual life, physical life, and eternal life. And that's what John 3.16 means. That whoever believes that Jesus did that, that he died that death, and he rose up from the grave, that life comes back into him. And from there, we went to the second thing about God that we need to know. And we said that God is a just God. God is a God of justice. And in the garden, there were three parties involved. There was man, there was God, and there was Satan. And God had to be just to those three parties. If God simply just looked at the whole situation and said, well, Adam, you're still my son, you're still my son. It will make God himself a liar because God had already said that if you take of this, you will die. So irrespective of God's feelings about it, God had to be just to himself and his word because he has said if you take of this fruit, you will die. Man had to die. Irrespective of how God feels about the situation, man had to die. But God didn't leave man in that state. He created a plan to legally give life back to man. So, these three questions that we are asking here, is it that Christianity is preaching superiority to other religions? No. Is it that we are saying we are better than others? No. But is Jesus the only way? Yes. And that creates the problem. You see, from the beginning of time, the problem has never been that Jesus is a God. That's not the problem. In the early church in the New Testament, because the Roman Empire had so many gods, and the, the Greek society had so many gods, they had Zeus, they had Hela, they had a god for everything, Apollo, Artemis, everything. The problem was not that the Jews said they had their own god. That was not their problem in life. Herod himself rebuilt the temple for the Jews because they were not opposed to worship. The problem came when they started killing them, when they killed Stephen in the book of Acts. It's because it became clear that what the Christians were actually saying was that their God is the one true God. That's when they started killing them. Because for them, they're like, so your God was a man that our government killed. Because the Roman government kills Jesus and you're saying that he's greater than Caesar. Caesar that they revered as a God. That's where problems started. For the longest time, they thought that the, Jude the Jews and the Christians were the same people. Is when they started to hear Peter and John and all these people speak about Jesus in such a way that they are saying, he's the only way. That's when problems started. That problem has not ended today. 
because if you have a friend that is a muslim or a buddhist or an average young person they don't have a problem with the fact that you say you believe in something i have a lot of people in my life that will say everybody should speak their own truth <laughs> speak my truth you speak your truth so Billy, your truth is jesus is fine you know it's your truth well my truth is this I went out to evangelize to someone once and when we finished talking, we talked about the Bible, the history. I was like, Billy, my, he said, my religion is love. And I said, Jesus is love. <laughs> I, I talked to somebody else. He said, see, he was even telling me, you know if he convinced me anybody. See, anybody if you believe in anything, the person where they serve issue, it's not different from the person where they serve Jesus. Honor God. The problem with Christianity from the world or from society is not that you are saying that you believe in Jesus Christ. It's that you are saying that he is the only way. It's that exclusivity that anybody will do anything to fight you for. It's that exclusivity that makes evangelism such a strange thing. Because people don't like to hear that... You are saying that there's only one way that man can be saved. But unfortunately, it's true. Because they called the Christians Christians at Antioch. They, ne- they didn't call them the Christi- Christians at Jerusalem. And even when they called them Christians, it was a derogatory term. It wasn't particularly something they were celebrating. We say, oh, this one, these ones are behaving like that Jesus that we killed. <laughs> Call them Christians. It's not about religion. It goes beyond religion. It goes beyond filling a form and say, oh, what's your religion? You now click down Christianity. It goes beyond that. It's about life. And life and death, if you will understand these two words, if we understand what they truly mean, it unlocks this entire Bible. This Bible starts to make sense to you, your heart, when you understand what it means to be alive and when you understand what it means to die. And you might be in that situation where you have things you are struggling with, where you have things that you just can't break out from, whether it's a habit or a lifestyle or something. The problem is not what you do. The problem is who you are. The life of Jesus just needs to come into you and you need to walk with him. There are some things that will just naturally leave you. It's a testimony in my own life. Some people here know me well enough to know me two, three years ago. I wasn't like this. Something has to change. It's not about what you do. It's who you are. Christianity is about the change in nature. That's what it is. And real quick today, I want to talk about what the point of Christianity is. And after this, we'll close. And we're still going back to Genesis. So please, let's go to Genesis. What's the point of the Christian life? What's the point? Perhaps you're here and you're a Christian. And...
you've kind of been moving in circles in your Christian life. Genesis chapter 2. I've actually already talked about it today. But Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. Then let's quickly read Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. These two verses give us insights into the point of the Christian life. Because the point of the Christian life hasn't really changed. If Christianity is not a religion, if Christianity, if Christianity truly is about having the nature of God inside us, if that's what we are saying, it means that God's plan hasn't changed. It means that what God wanted to do with Adam, he had to restore us through Jesus so that he can continue doing it. And there are two things that we can get from this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says that, And in the cool of the day, God came down and they heard the sound, they knew the sound of God's voice. And when they heard it, they went to hide. If you keep reading that, God, when they said, We heard you coming and we went to hide because we're naked. And God said, How do you know that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree I asked you not to eat? The point I want to bring out here, though, is that the fact that they knew God's voice. And they knew how he was walking. They said they knew his footsteps. They heard the sound of him coming and they knew. means that that was not the first time that God was coming that way. It was something that was habitual and continual. That they already recognized how he comes to them. I think I've said this before that in my house, like I know how everybody walks. My father, my mother, like once they are coming down the stairs, I know the person coming down the stairs because I live downstairs. I've heard them climb the stairs for years. So everybody's footsteps, you know, you know, we all have unique ways that we walk. You might not know it's because you're the one walking the walk, but if somebody lives with you, people will even know when you're the one that at the door because they will know how you like to open the gates. It's that strange because human beings are habitual beings. We have patterns and we took that nature from God himself because God has patterns. God has patterns throughout scripture, but that's not today's subject. Anyway, the point is they knew that it was God that was coming. Because that's not the first time God was coming to them like that. And if you have you ever tried to imagine what God's conversation with Adam would have been? Because today we we pray, at least Christianity, we encourage prayer. But you have to realize that like what do you think they were talking about? Adam did not have any sin to confess. So it's not as if you come to God and say, God, please forgive. He didn't know sin. So throughout his relationship with God before Genesis 3, what do you think they were talking about? We can't fathom it, we can't imagine it, because this is the reality we've always known. 80% of the time when we go to God as we are now, is that we're saying, oh God, forgive me, or I did this thing <laughs> that I wasn't supposed to do. Or you're going to ask God for something. God, provide this for me, provide that for me. I need help here, I need help there. Or maybe you're going to pray for somebody. What was Adam talking to God about? He had nothing to pray about. God had given him the entire garden. He had no sin to confess because he hadn't done anything wrong. So what were they talking about 
every time he came in the cool of the day, they most likely were talking about each other. God was talking about God. And Adam was talking about Adam. The first point of Christianity and the Christian life is relationship. That's the first reason why we're Christians. That's the first point. It's relationship. God wants you to know him and he also wants to know you. So I think yesterday when I was introducing today's subject, one of the things I said was, when you understand life and death, then every single tenant of Christianity, prayer or reading your Bible, coming to church, or all of those things will start to make sense when you know what life and death is. The problem with most of us is we've probably gone to church all our lives. We probably grew up in a Christian household or we had an auntie or an uncle that in the morning they shall drag you and say, yeah, let's be going. And at some point you reach an age where you can think for yourself and because you've been doing all those things as routine, you start to ask yourself questions like, what's the point? Like, why am I going to church? Why am I doing this? And we fall away because there's no, we don't have any answer to that question because it's just stuff that we've always done. For most people, that thing happens when they enter uni. When I got into university, the first day I entered university years ago, the first day, very first day, when I entered a restaurant and I went to eat, one guy in 300 level, who I think like he repeated, moving on, he came to me and the first thing he came to me, he, he, I, was at, I was buying food and he said, because you won't understand it when you are the fresher, but for many of us, like, you won't understand it when you are the one in 100 level, but when you get to like two, three, you will now understand how people who have been in school for a while can just smell new blood. Like they just know <laughs> when someone is in their first year. You won't get when you are the one in first year. But when I got to two, when I got to three, and I just, I'm eating randomly and someone just passes, I'm like, that one's a fresher. <laughs> because there's just something about them. They've not lost their innocence. <laughs> They're not yet jaded about the school. Um, so the guy came to meet me because he knew I was on level, and the first thing he told me was like, I just come from secondary school, that he wants to expose me to life. Yeah. He and his guys were chilling. So that time, I think they used to sell, there's this Don Simon that had a black pack of, you know, Tinto or something in hand. So he now bought it. He now said, I should come and sit down and chill with them. And I said, thank you. And I plugged my earpiece, bought my food, went outside, got the nearest bike and go back. <laughs> I went back to my room. But, like, that starts in 100 level for most unis. I'm talking uni specifically now. But not just in uni. It might be any point in your life where even if you don't want to ask yourself those questions about why you're doing those things, the people that you interact with, your social circle, the people around you will force you to ask yourself, why are you going to church? <laughs> why are you reading your Bible? What's the point? Even if you didn't have those questions come up for yourself, it will come up at some point. But we need to understand that relationship is the first reason why. It's the first reason why. God wants you to know him. And he wants to know you. That's why reading the Bible becomes important. That's why prayer becomes important. That's how those things fit in. And the second reason is assignment or service. An assignment or service service to God. 
Because the Bible also tells us in Genesis 2. Now what? He planted a garden. We read it. He planted a garden and he put Adam there to tend it. God did not create Adam before he created that garden. He created the garden first then he put Adam inside it. What that tells us or what that should tell us about our lives is that whatever the reason is that God created every single one of us here, the reason that you exist was waiting for you before you were given birth to. And a lot of people go through life confused about what to do. When I was in uni, I got so engrossed in the question of purpose. Like, I read the Purpose Driven Life by recording from back to front. I read the book, eh? I did all those things. They were teaching about it in uni. We'll be doing leadership seminar. It's in uni I got like jaded about motivational speakers because I heard one too many. Motivational speakers, they'll come in the guise of church because I was in fellowship. And they'll come to fellowship and they'll not open one Bible. And they'll not be telling us you can do it. There's something that you're supposed to do. Just list all your talents and all your gifts. Write them down. And know the one that you are strongest in. And you'll make it if you do that. And you listen to all those things and you just realize that statistically speaking, not everybody makes it in that way that you're talking about. And I remember when I was in uni, I was in choir. And they'll be talking to us about how God has given us gifts and all that, all that. God has given us gifts. But again, context. And they start talking to everybody in the choir like all of us are going to graduate and somehow blow and release albums because we all have talent. And you leave the four walls of school and like life is just waiting for you outside. <laughs> Reality hits you. And I went through school and I realized that what we were calling purpose was just wishful thinking. Just wishful thinking and slapping Bible verses on it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Slapping Bible verses on it without any context, without really understanding what those verses actually mean. That's not purpose. A lot of people, they have their own dreams and their own plans for their lives. And what they now do is they now go to God to, not to ask for permission, or to to stamp it like, okay, God, this is what I want to do. Bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. They just want God to put his own sign of approval on what they have chosen to do with their own lives. And that's not what Adam did, though. Because he didn't have the luxury of doing that. Because he didn't know good and evil that time. I told you our problem is that with all this knowledge we have... <laughs> Because if all we had was just God, then naturally we'll just simply do what he wants. And that's the reason why the relationship is important first, before the assignment. So back then, the mistake that we made, and I got to know this when I left school, because even if you don't know it practically in church, life will teach you somehow, (laughs) was that we were just dreaming and we had this grandiose idea that because all of us could sing, all of us are going to be big musicians. Because all of us could play, like 10 of us could play instruments that all of us somehow are going to work with the biggest stars. And everybody has gifts and talents. What we don't understand or we don't really know is the fact that the fact that two of us, the fact that two of us can do the same thing 
the exact same thing does not mean that God wants to use us wants us to use that gift the same way essentially some people they can sing or they can write or they can do some amazing things and they will never blow till they die they would make the if they follow God they will make the impact that God wants them to make in whatever place or whatever sphere that God has chosen for them if they follow him but they will never blow they will never even if even gospel they will never become the next like Franklin or whatever. It will never happen to them because that's not what God has for them. And it's okay. A lot of times what happens is the church teaches ambition and they say they are teaching purpose. But we're not, that's not what it is. It's not about ambition. God gave Adam a garden to tend. And without relationship and assignment, the Christian life has no meaning. So unfortunately, some people have spun the narrative of Christianity around blessing and provision. Does God say he's going to bless you? Yes. But that's not the reason why he called you. So I remember that when we go for evangelism here, one of the things I say is, the gospel is Jesus's. He came he died, he rose up, for that you have life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I've had people come to evangelize to me and talk to me about business in the name of evangelism. Like, talk, to, so they want to, have you have you ever heard that before? Like, someone wants to preach to, to you about Jesus and they want to know where you walk and they now come from that angle, like, you know, God can promote you, God can increase you, as if, like, they are trying to sell you some proposal for God. That's not evangelism because, like, if it's money you're looking for, there are just so many ways to make that money and never entering church. There's so many people out there today. They are not here. You are here. They are not here. They are working. And money is going to come as a result of that work. So if the point is material stuff, if the point is simply to make it and have money and blessings and all that, then you don't need to be with God. Not because God doesn't want to give us those things. But because where we are coming from is that the, the entire narrative is about life and death. Everything else fits into that narrative. So if we're really talking about life and death, then the only reason, the only thing that makes Christianity worth it is that you have confidence that you have God on your side no matter what is happening. And that confidence can never come if you don't have a relationship with him. And that's why relationship is primary but also, if God is the one that created you, then he knows what he has created you for. And you will never truly be fulfilled if you are not doing the exact thing that he has created you to do. And also, that's where assignment comes in. So, he created the garden, and then he put Adam there. And for every single one of us here, there's something that he has set out for you that he needs you to discover but you cannot discover if you don't build a relationship with him and finally beyond that specific thing there's one thing that applies to all of us and this is where I'm going to close today and it's in the book of Matthew, but it's also in the book of Mark. And it's in the book of John, too. 
is an assignment that Jesus gave to every single person that decided to follow him. So Jesus rose up from the grave, Matthew 28, verse 19. The Bible says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I usually call this, it's called the Great Commission. May I call it the common denominator. Like for every believer, how many of us have done in when we're in, when we're in primary school, when did we learn fractions? Was it primary or secondary school? Anyway, in primary school, you know, there's a numerator and there's a denominator. So, like, the denominator is, so when they say something has a common denominator, it means that the two numbers under are the same. So, 1 over 8 plus 2 over 8 is equal to 3 over 8 because it has 8 and it has 8. So, you don't need to do anything. But if they say 1 over 8 plus 1 over 7, then you're confused. <laughs> you now have to figure it out. Amen. So, common denominators basically mean that it's common to every party involved. The top changes. So, while talking about assignments, there's a numerator, which can be a different number. But for every single person that identifies with Jesus, we all have a common denominator. And the common denominator is that no matter who you are, you have to tell somebody about him. Not because you want to preach religion, but because... God doesn't want anybody to perish. And if you go through the whole of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what Jesus kept doing. Even Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said it with his own mouth. And he sent his disciples out. He went out to heal them, deliver them. He started talking to them and saying, see, you go through a lot of things for me. Because people are going to hate you. People are going to not like what you are saying. And there are people that probably don't like what I'm saying today. I, I pray they are not here, Shabbat. <laughs> there are people that don't like what I'm saying today. That if they hear what I'm saying, they are ready to fight me on it. No matter how in quotes, no matter how much I say, it's not about judgment. I'm not judging you. No matter how much I say, Christianity is not preaching superiority. Jesus is just the only way. They're not willing to hear it. That always exists. We can't do anything about it. However, God doesn't want anyone to perish. And the common denominator for every believer is that we have to tell someone about him. Everything else finds its place on top of that. And that's the reason why we organize this talk, this program. So that we will tell somebody about him, but not tell them simply that, oh, eh, so you do this, so you steal, so you are lying. Ah, you are going to die. One day you are going to perish and go to hell. Not to tell them that that's not the gospel. It's not a gospel of fear. But to make them understand that God's wish is that we have the life that we lost. And when we have the life that we lost, we build a relationship with him and discover exactly what he made us to do so that we can find fulfillment in life. 
we live in such a fast-paced society. At some point, I deleted my Instagram. At some point, I left Instagram. Now I am back there because, you know, I'm in a better place. But there was a point in my life a couple of years ago when I was kind of lost and I was so ambition-focused and I was calling it purpose. And I was getting so depressed because it just felt like everybody around me was doing better than I was. The society today, the world we live in today, makes it so easy for you to compare your life to another person. Because somebody is going to showcase what they have. Whether what they have is what they really have is a different story. <laughs> Whether the picture that they are snapping with on IG or on Twitter is truly their car or truly their house, that's a different story. But they shall say it's their own. And they'll put it there for you to see. And that can be quite intoxicating. It's the reason why a lot of people sometimes they'll say, okay, for the, for the sake of their mental health, they are leaving Twitter, they are leaving this. I understand them on a level because I understand that kind of pressure. But when we understand what Jesus really is, you won't go through that pressure. That's the truth. Even when you, I see those things now, I say, well, I thank God for your life. <laughs> Whether it's true or not, it's not my business. My own is that I'm following God and he knows where he's taking me and I have an assurance that I have him because I have a relationship with him. And nothing else is more important than that. Unfortunately, for, t for a lot of us, because of how fast-paced and weird Nigeria is, a lot of youths are suffering under the pressure of just making, even making ends meet is hard. Not to talk of actually like, I don't know, standing out in whatever you choose. Remember when I, some, there are some people I cut off from my life and I cut off from them because Every time they talk to me, the first thing they ask me is, Billy, how far the music now with the album? <laughs> and because they knew me musically when we were in school. And I thought, those, this was before anyway, I thought those things never got to me. But I realized that they were getting to me. Because, like, there are people that I went to, even secondary school with, that they've blown now. Like, I don't want to mention their names, but you probably know them. Someone that I taught music. Has blown, making money. <laughs> in school too, a bunch of people. There's a group of friends that I have. They're in South Africa now. In one competition, doing really, really well. We played keyboard together, sang together, and everything. And back then, they used to put me under a lot of pressure because I'm just like, ah. I don't have talent. <laughs> like, when is my own coming? Right now, I have so much peace in that area because I know that's not for me. How do I know it's not for me? Because God has told me, told me, okay, this is what this is the one you are going to. This music, this is how I want to use it. For a lot of things in our lives, it's not like we don't have things that are good about us. It's not like God hasn't given us skills or talents or things that He wants to express, or even intuition or inspiration. The problem is when we now have those things, we now try to do it our way. We try to do what we want without taking the time to figure out what he wants, how he wants to use that thing, how he truly wants to make it beautiful. And I pray that God will help us in Jesus' name.